Hey, you guys, this is Rebecca. And Lily. And you're listening to Just Ghouly Things. Ooh. Hey, Boo Things. So, welcome back to our podcast, Just Ghouly Things. And we're your beautiful hosts, Rebecca and Lily. <laughs> so, today we're going to be talking about U.S. haunted houses. Yay! And this was Lily's idea. I'm super excited about it because this is actually pretty fun research to do. Um, some pretty cool haunted houses. There's so many haunted houses in the U.S., True. but we decided to pick the more famous ones, yeah. and hopefully there'll be a part two, three, four, five million, you know, because I, I love this subject. I, it was really fun. I was listening last night. I was watching uh, YouTube videos because I was too tired to like actually read shit, and I was kind of like lulled to sleep almost, and it was I slept with the light on because I... Just so a lot of the houses that we're going to be talking about, you've probably seen on your favorite paranormal show, such as Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, Paranormal Lockdown. You know, you'll see it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So um, I'm actually going to start with um, a haunted house called the Hinsdale House. So to just the common eye, this is an ordinary looking house in Hinsdale, New York, but it's actually a pretty spooky property with a reportedly ghostly past and present. <laughs> so this farmhouse is located on Mick, uh, McMahon or McMahon Road. McMahon? McMahon. It's like McMahon or something like that. I think that's McMahon. It looks like Austin Mahone or something like that. Austin Mahone! Throwback. <laughs> I don't even hear about that guy anymore. Remember his fans were called Mahomies? Yes! Oh my God. <laughs> throwback um but this is located in the woods of hinsdale new york and is also known as the dandy house in memory of a family that once lived there in the early 1970s now remember the dandy family because this is this is gonna pretty much tie into the whole this is gonna tie into the whole reported haunting so the house first came to the media's attention in september of 2000 when a book called echoes of a haunting was published now this book was written by clara miller um, maiden named Dandy, who was one of the Dandy family members who had lived in the house during the 1970s. So this is people didn't know that this was a haunted house until the year 2000. So that's pretty that's pretty okay. recent. Um, and by all accounts, the Dandy family experienced some very alarming and violent supernatural events during their ownership of the property. And after the Dandy family moved out, the house was occupied by various people, none who stayed for long. You'll see that as a common pattern as we talk about this uh, okay. episode. And it seems as though the spirits in the house were not willing to leave. Very stubborn spirits. Um, the final occupants, people living in the Hinsdale house, were a couple uh, by the names of Joe and Florence Misnick, who died only a few months apart. Coincidence or not, you know, <laughs> that's up to uh, you to think. But it is unclear how the house became haunted in the first place, but it certainly appears to be haunted now. So the Dandy family said they experienced so much supernatural activity during their time in the house but let's note that the house is already 100 years old when they bought it. So that kind of explains why there'd be so many okay. paranormal experiences to begin with. You don't know if it's they the actual... Whole century. You yeah. don't know if it's the house, the property oh, itself, true. Native and Americans. You never... Yeah, you never yeah. know, especially in New York and, you know, all the Native Americans, you know, where they lived. All you don't know... America. Yeah, were- before we... Before, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Before we kind of came in, it was like mine. Well, but yeah, more but, more about that in, later in another story. episode. Yeah, um, but yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty much the history behind it. But the root cause of 
why there are spirits at this house. There's no real connection of deaths or fire, so that's still up in the air. Um, but strange activity in this place. Um, the family began to notice strange things going on in the house, including weird phone calls. This even extended to chanting coming from nearby woods. And initially, you know, Ooh. they just thought it was their overactive imaginations, but things got worse from there once they heard the chanting. So they started seeing apparitions in the house, including a woman in white. Oh. There it is. And some disturbing human-animal hybrids. So very, like, demonic, you know, that kind of... Any human-animal-looking thing. And they found this in the house? Yes, this was in their house. Um, And they even... um, And this kind of reiterates. They even saw demonic, non-human presences and entities. Just a very vague description. Okay. But perhaps one of the most chilling stories that comes from the Hinsdale house is when the family saw some unfamiliar and odd faces staring at them through the windows, like looking in. When, but then when Phil, which is Clara's husband, ran out of the house to confront the faces, the faces somehow reversed, and he realized they were now staring back at him from inside the house. Ah! Yeah. Uh-huh. That, that part got me. I was like... So if that wasn't scary enough for you guys, there then began to be violent poltergeists. So items began levitating around the house, and even one object was forcibly thrown at one of the daughters by an unseen force. Phil then began to succumb to a state of amnesia and began to not remember some of the most terrifying events that occurred while he was in the house. Was he committing the... Like, was he acting on it, or was he just didn't remember I don't think he was... I think he was there, or... Um, I didn't go into detail of what happened, but there could have been a time where he was acting a certain way. They're like, Phil, Phil. And gotcha. he just kind of had that glazed-over yeah. look. That's what I'm getting from this. Um, included with the poltergeist, there were lights turning on and off. Banging noises could be heard filtering through the walls. And apparently there, just in general, was a, just a feeling of an evil presence in the house. Like, you could okay. just feel it on your skin. I get that. So that, you know, that definitely... Gave them a reason to not want to be in that house any longer. You know, you could feel the energy whenever yeah. you're in. Like, I could always feel how heavy a room could be. Oh, not yeah. that I, not that I'm like a sensitive or anything or a medium, you can, you but can I can read the room. Yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. Well, that was me last night. I was watching the spooky videos, and I te- and then I heard something which was probably a squirrel, honestly. <laughs> and I texted my mom. I was like, Mom, you have to come up here. There's something in the house. She's like, Lily, no, it's a squirrel. Shut up. And I, but like, I felt it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that might have been me playing tricks on myself, but it's a scary feeling. Yeah. Sometimes you have to go with your gut with that. Yeah. There's a reason why you feel a certain way. And I think you should feed on, like, you should, you know, rely on what you're feeling for sure. Well, that also helps in, like, you know, an acting career or whatever. Oh, of course. Being able to walk in and know how you need to be, how everyone else is feeling. That's a big... Oh, definitely. Big, big help. Okay, continue. Sorry. So, Father Alphonsus... Alphonsus. Alphonsus? The Fonz. It was Fonzie! (laughs) A priest from the St. Bonaventure University came to the house to perform an exorcism. A team of paranormal investigators accompanied the priests, and they say the levels of paranormal activity were through the roof. Mm -hmm. But then they began to pray, and it kind of subsided. But it only took a few days for the hauntings to begin again. And at that point, the Dandy family just had enough of the craziness. They wanted a normal life again, and they decided to leave the house for good. 
Today, the house is owned and maintained by a paranormal investigator who has been trying to restore the building and preserve it for research purposes. So a lot of people are really intrigued by the story. They want to see if they can get in on any of the hauntings themselves. Um, the alleged hauntings still continue today with seasoned paranormal investigators and researchers, researchers claiming to have nightmares for months after visiting the house. So if you want to check out the house for yourselves, you guys, tours are available at a cost. I believe the cost just goes towards like the upkeep of the place and just helping other people that are trying to get into paranormal investigation, you know, help, you know, keep the name alive and well and helping with research. So every month, like, oh, every penny goes to a good cause. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's the Hinsdale House. Actually, um, I know a director who just filmed a movie there at the physical Hinsdale House, um, and there were some paranormal experiences, kind of similar, just noises mm-hmm. and just the feeling, like a heavy feeling yeah. when you get onto the location. It's a beautiful property itself. It's very it's very farm, rural-esque, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the nature is beautiful of it, but there's just like this dark, heavy feeling once you come into the house. Ooh, so. spooky. I yeah. like it. All right. So, Lil, what's your next story? All right. So, my next story is the Velisca Axe Murder House. All right. Let's hear about so it. So, this is in Iowa, and I actually, I wanted to try to go this summer, but I didn't even get to go to Iowa, so that was upsetting. Oh. But. No Iowa State Fair for you? No State Fair. I actually just watched, okay, is this true that at the Iowa State Fair, they have different competitions where people come up to the mic and there's like a husband calling one or a mom calling? There very well could be. Yes. There there was a video I saw from like BuzzFeed or something. It's like these women, they come up to them like, Craig, dinner's ready. Come up here now. And everyone judges. And last year or a couple years ago, an 89-year-old woman, an 89-year-old woman won from a wheelchair. She had like an oxygen tank on but she like killed her like her audition or her That's performance a, or whatever it is yeah it was pretty funny there's a, I, I see new things every year I, I felt that that was a very Iowa State Fair thing oh, of them to do so is the deep fried butter on a stick no that's a real pad, thing that is a real that thing. is disgusting deep fried butter my brother loved it um I remember I have a weird memory of the Iowa State Fair so I wasn't th- looking back this is weird because I wasn't at the fair so there's these um, like gas station, like Seven Eleven type places called uh-huh. Casey's, and they okay. have pizza, and it is so good. Like really? Casey's pizza, yes, it's amazing. And I remember my grandma driving me and my brother to Casey's, and we were just sitting on the curb eating pizza, and someone, and we just see like this motorized like uh, scooter coming mm-hmm. around the corner, and we're like, okay, whatever, and we're eating our pizza. And it slows down, and my grandma, and this is Iowa, so everyone's nice. My grandma's like, hi, how are you? And he's like, oh, hello, how are you? And we're like, we're good. She's like, these are my grandchildren. And he's like, nice to meet you. My name is, like, you know, Benjamin or whatever. <laughs> and he, like, out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, takes, like, a thing of balloons and a pump and, like, makes us balloons and is just like, so are you in town for the fair while he's doing this? And we're like, yeah. And we're from New Jersey where everyone hates each other. You oh, wait, so you weren't anyone. in the fair at this point? No, we were just on the curb at a gas station <laughs> on, in, in the suburbs. This is getting weird. We're sitting on the sidewalk and we're, I mean, it was, it was sweet. And then he's like, all right, goodbye, you know, good day. And I know if I text my brother right now, he would remember that exact moment. That was a very Pennywise thing it, of him. Oh my God, you're so right. 
You'll float too. I remember after I saw it one, I went to visit my friend in Philly and there was a farmer's market on a rainy day and there was a kid who had gotten a balloon in a yellow rain jacket and I took a picture and I said, this is how it started wait, coming home. Wait, I just watched it again because we bought it on the yeah. TV and yesterday, I shit you not, I took a video. <laughs> I freaked me the fuck out. I was going onto one of the main roads around here and the truck in front of me it was like mm-hmm. a SUV. There was a green balloon right in between the no! driver and passenger seat. I took a video of it. I'll post it. It was so creepy. I just watched it the day before and I was like, stop it. This is too much for me right now. Was that when I texted you on a play tag? That was the best meme you've ever made, hands down. I love all your memes, but that one just... Thank you. That one just shit in all the other ones. <laughs> that one was the best one. Okay, sorry. All right, so, Villisca, Iowa. So, these are axe murders that happened back in 1912. So, it says, June 10, 1912, Villisca, Iowa. On a quiet... Res- this is directly from the Villisca Axe Murder House. On a quiet residential street in this small town sits an old white frame house. On a dark evening, the absence of lights and sounds are the first indication to visitors that this house is different than the other homes around Wait, it. Wait, I just have to make a point. I'm sorry. But the Hinsdale house is a white house. This is a white house. And then the next, I'm not going to give it away, but the next story I'm going to talk about is a white house as well. So white, white dresses, dresses white, house. white houses. I just, I'm sorry. I'm asleep. Okay. okay. <laughs> white is just not my go-to color. This is why I like black. This is why I wear black everything, because white, I think, is more demonic at this point You're than black. You're become a ghost. It's just, psh. Okay, so, sorry. Um, upon closer inspe- inspection, I almost said investigation. <laughs> upon closer inspection, you'll notice its doors and windows are tightly closed and covered. Mm-hmm. An outhouse in the backyard suggests that this house does not occupy a place in the 21st century, but somehow belongs in another era or another story. Ooh. A weather-beaten sign hanging from the decrepit front porch. I'm picturing this and I don't even know what this house warns, looks like. Warns rather than welcomes. It is the murder house. The murder house. The murder house. The walls still protect the identity of the murderer or murderers who bludgeoned to death the entire family of Josiah Moore and two overnight guests on June 10th, 1912. Almost 97 years later, her secret continues to draw visitors to her door. To some, it seems to be speaking. Visits by paranormal investigators have provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. Tours have been cut short by children's voices, falling lamps, moving ladders, and flying objects. Psychics have confirmed the presence of spirits dwelling in the home and may of spirits dwelling in the home and may have actually communicated with them, and skeptics have left believers. <laughs> I lost what the skeptics left. <laughs> <laughs> skeptics. Leaving me at the edge of my seat. So, what do they believe? Skeptics, they believe? tell me. Let me see. <laughs> Let me see. Skeptics have left believers. Wait, There's no, nothing. stops. <laughs> Melissa Murder House, you have too many mysteries. You have too many <laughs> mysteries. So anyways, here's what happened. It was... June, so it was late June 10th, early June 11th, um, there was a group of six, a family of six, and they had two neighbors sleeping over. And in the middle of the night in Villisca, Iowa, they were just like bludgeoned by an axe. Yeah. So here we go. Let's go to the victims. 
So oh, okay. The victims were six out of eight were a family of Josiah B. Moore. Josiah Moore's kind of hot. He's given the smolder. He kind of has like the Brad Pitt look. Okay. Well, I'm looking at Sarah Montgomery here, and there's a bit of like a Winona Ryder kind of I, I feel that. Okay. Right? And then these kids are just Brad Pitt slash... No, I feel more Leo. I think he looks more like Leo. I'm getting that one guy who... Was he in Titanic? That's Leo DiCaprio, honey. No, no, no. There's a different <laughs> guy. And I know if I show him to my mom or my dad, they'll know who I'm talking oh, about okay. when I just say that guy. Anyways... So, he was one of Velisca's most prominent businessmen. At the time of his death, he was survived by his parents, Mr. and Mrs. C. Seymour of Velisca, his brothers, John Moore of Summerfield, Kansas, George Moore of Portland, Oregon, Fenmore of Red Oak, and James, Charlie, and Ross of Velisca, and his sisters, Mrs. George Fisher of Velisca, and Miss Minnie Moore of Omaha, Nebraska. Damn. So, Josiah married Sarah Montgomery on December 6th. Hey! It's my birthday! Oh, wait. What are you? I'm a Sagittarius. Ooh, Sagittarius. It's funny. When you look at, like, those um, astrology things, a lot of them are, like, either, you know, like, super mega accurate or really wrong, but mine are just always dead on. Really? Sagittarius. It's, uh, yeah, like, my friends in the group chat, they send them, and they're like, and again! <laughs> Here we are, Lily. Here we are. Um... So they got married on December 6, 1899 at uh, Sarah Montgomery's parents' home. And then they had four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. Josiah had been a resident of Liska for 13 years and was employed by a man named Frank Jones at the Jones store for nine years. Sarah Montgomery Moore was born in Knox County, Illinois. So... Neighboring state, right? In 1873, and moved to Iowa with her parents, Mr. and Mrs. John Montgomery, and her sister Mary, in around 1894. So she was 39 years old and the mother of four children when she was murdered in her bed. Mm. She was an active member of the Presbyterian Church and led the Children's Day exercises on June 9th. So she, wow. so the family went to church, came home. You know, had a nice evening. And then got murdered. And then got murdered. So, among the suspects immediately after the murders was Sarah's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder, the ex-husband of Sarah's sister. So, this is a whole family thing. Yeah. Um, That's a little confusing. So, you have the real residents, Josiah B. Moore and Sarah Montgomery Moore, his wife. There are four children. They had her, uh, a son named Herman, who was the oldest, born in 1901 and was 11 years old. Um, and it was said that he was quite his father's son okay. and was often seen at his side. And then there was Catherine, who was born two years after Herman in 1903. And then there were Boyd and Paul, who were the youngest children. Aww. And then they, they were so young when they died. Yeah. And then they had. Um, two like neighbor sisters who were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger and they were born on the Stillinger family farm uh, Lena was 12 years old when she was murdered and from the position of her body it was concluded that she was the only victim who had attempted to fight off her attacker oh, she was a bad bitch too well it was also suggested that she was uh, assaulted by her killer Oh, no. And, yeah, so. 
That's so sad. Yeah, so... Oh, that's so scary. So, it was uh, Lena and Ina, or Ina, <laughs> L-E-N-A and I-N-A. So, those are the eight people. Okay. The two Stillinger sisters, the four more children, Sarah Moore, Sarah Montgomery Moore, and Josiah B. Moore. That's so, a lot. Yeah. Eight people were killed overnight in... This is before... I don't know everything. There was for the DNA. Yeah, like, but there has to be more than one killer. There's no way that this was just one axe murderer. Well, unless well, this guy was super strong. Because I'm assuming it's a guy. Yeah. Well, it was believed that they had been killed in their sleep, most of them. And the guess is, the one who was assaulted and seemed to have fight it off was the one who was awake. A lot of people also. Wow. There was a theory, and you see people who don't really know a lot about it. You know, saying. Oh, it must have been the father. He went crazy and killed everyone, but then who killed him with that? Yeah, yeah. So, we're going to read through the suspects really quick. Ooh, okay. All right. Let's go. So, head suspect is a a state senator from Villisca. So... This is Frank Jones, who was his boss. Oh, and yeah, owned yeah, the yeah, store yeah. Where he worked. Okay. So it says, while no one was ever convicted of the Velisca axe murders, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects. In the days following the crimes, you could have read about at least four possibilities in any edition of any newspaper. Wow. Many of the leads, however, were quickly exhausted, and as time wore on, they began to dwindle. And of course, now. It doesn't even matter because yeah. it is, what, three generations? It's, it's not even like yeah. you can tell, like, their kids' kids, hey, you know, you killed so-and-so because... They didn't have any. Yeah. yeah. Damn. Uh, so today, historians and those who have studied the axe murders extensively seem to be made up of three camps, right? So there are people who believe it was Frank F. Jones, who was of prominent Villisca resident and an Iowa State senator who was responsible for the brutal deaths of the Moors and the Stillingers children. The only thing I'm thinking, though, is, you know, if we were to ever find out with DNA, like, if there was ever a way we could find out who the actual murderer was, Mm -hmm. because I'm assuming you're going to say that, you know, with the Velisca Axe Murder House, there's a haunting, most likely these people are haunting the house, maybe it'll bring closure to them. And that would help them pass on. Wow. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Am I ahead? Did I jump the gun? Okay, no, no, cool. you didn't. I just, I was just thinking that while you were saying the Well, there's, suspect. A, there's something very similar that happened on Ghost Adventures. Oh, okay. So that's one of the suspects. Another one, which doesn't completely clear Frank Jones off of the list, is um, this guy, William Blackie Mansfield. Uh-huh. So a lot of what people think is, was William Mansfield paid by Frank Jones. Okay. Because this man was known... So he's from Illinois. Okay. Right? He was the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson. Right? So this guy is a prime suspect. He's done okay. shit before. Okay. And it actually got to the point where William Blackie Mansfield was tried twice. For this for murder? For this murder. Oh. The first time he got off on a hung jury. Okay. And the second time, well, he was acquitted. Wow. Not so, enough evidence, was it? I have no idea. Huh. I don't know. Seems suspicious to me. Yeah. 
I'm not liking so this guy. So it says, in Red Oak, Iowa, July 21st, 1916, William Mansfield was released by order of District Judge Woodruff at 3 o'clock this afternoon after a special Montgomery County grand jury refused to indict him for the Velisca Axe murders four years ago. The sheriff placed him in an automobile and drove into the country, and it is supposed, it is supposed Mansfield will return to Kansas City, Kansas at once. Oh, wait. So, I came up with something. What? Okay. What if... But, like, maybe the reason why he was able to get off is if he did kill him for Frank Jones, and Frank Jones is, like, the senator of Iowa, he has that political power to, like... Yeah. Ah! So he can do that. Also, it is alleged that Moore, right, Josiah Moore, had an affair with Frank Jones' son. I forgot to throw son? in that. I mean, daughter. Oh. Oh, wait, still. Uh, huh. His daughter-in-law, right? Damn. So there was a rumor going around that Moore had had an affair with Jones's daughter. Wow. Yeah. The um, tea is hot, guys. Yeah, so that, that did not help. And then there's a couple, there's a couple other. Uh, there's a reverend who was arrested in 1917. Um, a bunch of, there were a couple uh Homeless men or whatever, but Andy Sawyer, he was detained by a sheriff on June 18th, 1912. Okay. So, what's that, like a week after? Yeah. So, he allegedly had crazed mutterings, and and he made his employer nervous. He said something at one point, like, I'm going to kill all of you. I will cut your goddamn head off. Quote is what it says. I will cut your goddamn head off. At the same time, he made striking motions with the axe and began hitting the piles in front of him. So, okay, he had some problems. Okay. So if you watch, going back to um, my little document with the claims, if you go back, when you watch the Ghost Adventures episode, so I watched a highlight reel of that, and I'm going to go home and watch the Ghost Adventures, I think, Ghost Hunters went there too, maybe. I don't know. I'm going to watch all of them. They got an EVP. They got a bunch of EVPs. Oh, Wow. They had a, a door slamming, one of the most convincing ones that I've ever seen. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I saw it, and I immediately was like, oh, that was this episode? They got EVPs, and they got one when they said, what is the murderer's name? And it sounds like someone was saying, Andy. Oop, there it is. Yeah, so yep. I'll post a link on our Facebook, Just Go Things Podcast, and we can uh, kind of go over that. They I think that'd be cool to discuss that with you guys because we'd like to know your yeah. your take on that. Exactly, and I love a good like kind of like a whodunit conspiracy. Yeah, I like, love that. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, I wish there was closure, but if we can't get closure, like it's good to just yeah. bounce ideas off other people because maybe yeah. it brings a perspective that you wouldn't see normally. And they and they say, you know, like could this be closure by that by us getting? So I wanna I wanna definitely make a pilgrimage there, but it's on the other side of the state than where I usually am. Or, like, halfway to the other side. Um, but if I do go, I'll let you know. You, If you can go, please go. It's uh, only $10, and it goes back to the house. Mm-hmm. And do a little... I was reading, tra- like, travel.com uh-huh. reviews, and they said just do a little research before because they... Um, depending on the guide you get, they may assume you know, and they may not. Yeah. But... Why do research when you can listen to us? Just Google Things Podcast. <laughs> All right, Rebecca. All right. You're next. So my last story is from a, is a very, very famous house called the Amityville Horror House. <laughs> now, just, now, just located 30 miles outside of New York City, this 
beautiful property could just be seen as just a normal house to somebody, just like the Hinsdale house. But in Mm -hmm. fact, this is one of the most well-known haunted houses in the United States history. So the Emeryville story began actually in 1924 when John and Catherine Moynihan built their house at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. Them and their kids lived there happily for many years. No issues, nothing, Mm -hmm. okay? Then, in 1965, their descendants sold the house to the DeFeo family, who renovated it, landscaped it, and put a swimming pool. And apparently, my dog's howling in the back, adding ambiance. Apparently, the DeFeo family was very dysfunctional before anything happened, and often used violence to resolve situations. So... That's easily bait for an evil spirit to be like. But wait, yeah. So this family already had problems going into this house, right? The father was known to be brutal, while the eldest son, Ronald Jr., was soon using drugs and alcohol and was always getting in trouble with local police. Nine years after the DeFeo family moved in, on November 13th, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. rushed into Henry's bar in Amityville at 6.30 p.m. and yelled out, You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. It came to light that by using a 35 Marlin rifle, 23-year-old Ronald J. DeFeo Jr. murdered his whole entire family while they were asleep, which included his parents and four siblings. So Ronald Jr., who was known to be a heroin addict, alcoholic, was found guilty of the murders and was sent to prison for six consecutive life sentences of 25 years, a minimum of 150 years. So he just rotted in prison. Then, on December 18, 1975, two weeks after Ronald Jr. had been sentenced to those six consecutive life sentences, and about 13 months after the murder, the Lutz family moved in. And this is where you start hearing the paranormal accounts. I love it. All right. So they were, um, these were newlyweds, George and Kathleen Lutz, and they had, uh, she had three children. So normally this house would have been too expensive for them, but after everything that happened in that house, this Dutch colonial six-bedroom mansion was in desperate need of being sold. Mm-hmm. So they ended up getting it for only $80,000, which, Holy I mean, shit. that's obviously cheap, but even back then, that was significantly less for a six-bedroom. Like, that's insane. So... Um, you know, they were obviously told by the real estate agent, look, someone was murdered here. I mean, do you care? And they were like, no, I mean, the price is right. What could possibly go wrong, you know? So long story short, they only lasted 28 days in that house before leaving it. 28 days later. They're, right? 28 days later from SpongeBob. 28 days later. <laughs> that was actually really good. That was really good. Um, <laughs> wow, that actually got me. on my Their accounts of paranormal activity within the house is what propelled the legend of Amityville Horror, a.k.a. America's Most Haunted House, and birthed many books, documentaries, and films. So much of the DeFeo's family furniture uh, was still in the house when it was sold because it was included for only an additional $400 as part of the deal that the Lutz family made when they bought the house. Mm-hmm. So when that when friends of the Lutz family found out they were keeping the furniture that was from the murders, they were like, I think it would be a good idea that you have it blessed. And George Lutz was a non-practicing Methodist, and Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic, but they went and they got a Catholic priest named Father Mancuso, 
who agreed to carry on the house blessing. When, <laughs> no. He, no. when he arrived to perform the blessing, he flicked the first holy water and began to pray, and he suddenly heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. Now, when leaving the house after he blessed, he blessed it, he did not tell them what happened, but on December 24th of 1975, which is only like a couple weeks later, he did call George and advised him to stay out of the second floor room where he had heard the mysterious voice, which was actually the former bedroom of Mark and John Matthew DeFeo, but that was the place where Kathy planned to use as a sewing room, but the call was cut short by static. So nope. the message was never completed, but you know she wanted that as a sewing room, so they kind of disregarded it. Wait, wait a minute, 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 wait a minute. The furniture came as part of the deal of the house. Yes. They like I think like in they, the eighty thousand dollars is four hundred bucks. They had to keep the furniture? No. I think because they, they chose were just to? Yeah, because like they they were just moving in. They were a new family, yeah. like they needed furniture. No. no. I, if you're moving into a new house, <laughs> right? And someone's already died there and you have the furniture where they died, you better buy, sell, swap that shit. You're not gonna keep it. Money's tight, and you know what? Some people well, are cheap well, like that. And maybe it was good furniture. I would rather maybe it was like a nice Raymore and Flanagan back then. You never to, know. I was about to say, I would rather live in a straw hut with a nice lazy boy than in a mansion on a murder couch. Yeah, you're you're right. I would do the same thing, but Clearly, well, there's a lot of things that happened that I can't believe it took them this long to then yeah. leave, but you'll... They did learn their lesson the hard way. They did. <laughs> so, following, so following Father Mancuso's visit, he allegedly developed a high fever and blisters on his hands similar to stigmata, which um, I looked this up, and it's pretty much like when Jesus was crucified and he had like the holes in his hands and stuff, like, yeah. it kind of, like that's kind of like what it looked like. Oh. So at first, George and Kathy experienced nothing unusual in the house, but looking back, they reported that it seemed as if they were all living in a different house. Like they all just had different experiences and feelings, and it's like everyone kind of lived like a completely separate life, like, as if they were in like their own home. Like Sims? How, yeah. Like, they don't do things together? Yeah. So... Paranormal, this is a whole laundry list of paranormal experiences, so I'm just going to kind of Ooh, brush across. There's plenty of eyes in this I one. I love it with the little death part in the movie. So George would wake up around 3.15 every morning and would go out to check the boathouse. Later, he would learn that this was the estimated time of the DeFeo's killings. They say that around 3.15 is when he got yeah, killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the house had been plagued by swarms of flies despite the winter weather. And it always happened to be in that sewing room, the one where the kids died. Oh, uh, well. Yep. What? We just... Look, you know. Uh, and then Kathy would have vivid uh, nightmares about the murders and discovered the order in which they occurred and the rooms where they took place. And the Lutz children also began sleeping on their stomachs in the same exact way that the dead bodies in the DeFeo murders were discovered. Uh. They were never once asleep on their stomachs like that. And then all of a sudden, along with her nightmares, she was able to know exactly who was killed when. And she just knew that there was no way she would know that. That's insane. Yeah. And then, as they're, you know, fixing up the house and stuff, George discovered a small hidden room, which was only like four feet by five feet, so super small, behind shelving in the basement. A room that was not on the blueprints of the house. It was painted red. And so they called it the Red Room. Now, you know this room is a big no-no when the dog wanted no parts. Like, he would just, he would stay by there, but once he got to he was like, nope. Like, That's why I said very the quiet. family built that room in the basement. I'm mm, you right it's, now. Yeah. Or maybe not. I don't know. You never know. You never know. 
So there were also cold spots and odors of perfume and excrement. So shit. Remember? You were like, what's excrement? I'm like, that's shit. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. In areas of the house where no wind drafts or piping would explain this happening, which you see that a lot in paranormal experiences. You get a cold draft where you shouldn't. You smell a really strong or distinct smell. That's something that's very common in hauntings. Um, Also, while tending to the fire, George and Kathy saw an image of a demon with half his head blown out. It was burned into the soot in the back of the fireplace. Do you think that would be a giveaway? Um, You also had the Lutz's five-year-old daughter, Missy, develop an imaginary friend named Jody, who ended up looking like a demonic pig-like creature with the glowing red eyes. There it is. I remember that part. That part in the movie. I know the movie's different, but that part in the movie scared the shit out of me. Oh, hell yeah. One of the most scared... That, the garage scene in It, in not the It sequel, but the um, the first, the latest remake. I don't uh-huh. know how to phrase it, because right? you know, like, the Tim Curry one... Um, the scene when they're in the garage and out of nowhere Pennywise pop like that yeah. and those two fucking those glowing eyes got me yeah I'm gonna I'm not gonna that actually makes me jump out of my seat yep I am sleeping with the lights on tonight again too alright well and also in the early morning hours of Christmas Day of 1975 George looked up at the house after checking on the boathouse and saw Jody, the imaginary friend standing behind Missy at her bedroom window which obviously you see these red glowing eyes it's scary as hell he runs up to her room and finds her fast asleep with her small rock chair slowly rocking back and forth. Mm-hmm. George would wake up to the sound of the front door slamming. He would race downstairs to find the door dog sleeping soundly at the front door. Nobody else heard the sound, although it was loud enough to wake the house. So that was a big what the fuck. George also realized that he bore a strong resemblance to Ronald DeFeo Jr., the murderer, uh. and began drinking at the Witch's Brew, which is the bar where DeFeo once ha- was a regular customer. So he started, what? like, it was kind of like he was getting possessed. It's like that by... scene in The Shining at the end, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, yeah. when Jack Nicholson looks at the picture and he's in the picture yeah, on New Year's Eve. Yeah, right? Ah! Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, while in bed, Kathy received red welts on her chest and caused, an un- and caused by an unseen force and was levitated two feet in the air. Cloven hoof prints attributed to an enormous pig, uh, attributed to an enormous pig, appeared in the snow outside of the house on New Year's Day of 1976. Seems like this may be related to this Jody character, this demonic, pig-like, imaginary friend. And then green gelatin-like slime oozed from walls in the hall and also from the keyhole in the playroom door in the attic. Then, on top of that, a 12-inch crucifix that was hanging in the living room by Kathy revolved until it was upside down and gave off a very sour smell. So again, with the odors. Georgie then tripped over a four-foot-high china lion ornament that was in the living room and then found bite marks on one of his ankles. Later, this lion that was once moved up to the sewing room reappeared in the living room. So it's like, why was that even there? Um, And then George saw Kathy transform into an old woman of about 90. So not only was George starting to look like Ronald DeFeo Jr., but now his wife is starting to look like this 90-year-old woman. And he said that the hair wild, a shocking white, the face a mass of wrinkles and ugly lines and saliva dripping from the toothless mouth. Did they ever check for a gas leak? <laughs> did you just like press on and off? Or, like, did, you just, did you put in rice? But yeah, um, it's just... Yeah, did you put your whole, whole house, house in, in rice? rice? 
I just, yeah, this is, yeah. So, um, yeah. So then after deciding that something was actually wrong with their house and that they couldn't explain rationally, one of those 20 things. furniture? (laughs) No, but George and Kathy Lutz carried out a blessing on their own on January 8th of 76. George held a silver crucifix while they both recited the Lord's Prayer. And while in the living room, George allegedly heard a chorus of voices asking them, will you stop? By mid-January, another attempt at a house blessing by George and Kathy occurred, and they experienced what would turn out to be their final night in the house. The Lutzes declined to give a full account of these events that happened, um, describing them as too frightening to talk about. So this was pretty much everything. That that was the final straw. They left. They lived with, uh, I believe it was George's mother, um, and then life kind of tried they tried to get back to normal but mm-hmm. I know that one of the kids he's like um, a UPS driver or something now and he like talked about in a recent interview saying that his life is never the same that this house really I fucked him up and that. like yeah so of course the story is very interesting and brought extreme media attention but while it brought many believers it also brought, brought many skeptics so after telling their story George and Kathy actually took a lie detector test to prove their innocence and they passed they passed. Holy shit. The couple were bogged down in legal and financial issues, supposedly, which prompted skeptics to say that they had motive to create a fantastical story to sell to the mm. public. That was what skeptics were rebutting back Okay, with. if they need money and they need to sell something, sell the goddamn to furniture, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I just, yeah. And I think that also... The first thing to go. This is what I don't understand, too, is, you know, with the financial issues, they got this house for extremely achievement. They left this house. I'm assuming it was really hard for them to sell at first. So wouldn't they, like, wouldn't they be putting themselves more in financial trouble by leaving? So why would they... Like, I just... It just doesn't make sense to me. I have a really important question. Mm-hmm. Was the dog okay? I'm assuming so. I didn't see anything bad. In so. the movie, the dog makes it to the car, but I don't. I only remember bits and pieces. So who knows? I'm gonna just assume that be, the dog was okay. That's what sequel? I want to know. Be a sequel. I don't know. But anyway, the Lutz. But then another reason why skeptics don't believe in this is because the Lutz formal lawyer William Weber, who fell out with them over money issues, came out in 1979 claiming the three of them came up with this horror story over many bottles of wine. Mm. So, but like I said, you know, you have the kids like Daniel Lutz, who now yeah. lives in a quiet, a very quiet lifestyle, says that his life was ruined from this, and he has nightmares to this day about the experience. Um, and this is interesting too. Is now you know you have to bring to the effect the effect of the murderer Ron DeFeo because you know he's still alive and he was serving a six twenty five yeah. year sentence. Blah blah blah. He claimed that these voices were urging him to kill his family. So now it's like in these these ha- the haunting at Amityville that this family experienced, was that the same demons that made Ron DeFeo kill his family? I think so. Here's what do you Or think? was it the or is it just the spirits of the DeFeo family? Or it could be the DeFeo family reaching out to this new family and saying, "Don't we don't want you to turn out like us. We don't want one of you guys to become possessed and kill your family. So they were trying to help ease them out, and then the demons were just kind of a part of that too. I th- in, in my opinion, the spirits were probably already there. Okay. Um, I don't know. What do you think? That's. I mean, I think that I think that, that there was already something there. There's an evil presence and there. preyed on the violent people, and then the violent people... 
were gone and then the new people moved in and then it's like a squad now. I mean, also though, when you think about skeptics, right? Like skeptics are skeptics and this is definitely like bait for a skeptic. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, what is scarier? Having spooky ghosts who can control people in a certain house or having people who live day-to-day average lives being this batshit crazy, yeah. which makes is scarier you think. and easier to admit. It makes you think, yeah. I right? can't, yeah. I'd have to think about that you find for sure. a lot of unsolved cases, but I think yeah. it's, I personally think it's spirits because that's, to me, that's scarier. Yeah. But, but who knows? this house today... The Amityville house recently sold on February 2017 to an undisclosed owner for $605,000, which was actually $200,000 less than the original asking price. (laughs) It had been previously owned by four other families since the murders, and one of them actually changed the address from 112 Ocean Ave to now 108 because of, you know, the whole hubbub of this. You know, they kind of wanted their own privacy and their own identity. Well, but if they, if they changed the address, why would they tell them what the new address I, is? I guess it's public record, so regardless, you're going to find out. But, all right, that was I mine. I know your opinion, though, real quick. Okay. What, what, what do you think happened to um, the DeFeos? Is the first family. Yeah. And then and then the... Um, this is the Lutz family. And then the Lutz. What do you think happened to each one? What do you think? I think that... I mean, I, I honestly... Well, do you think do the you spirits think, were there? Or? I think that there may have been spirits there, but they had... But this family that was previous were a violent family. I think that if, if you're going to look at the science side of it, you know, Ronald DeFeo Jr. had a lot of problems from, you know, his father being a very violent person. And I think that that was definitely a catalyst for it. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, the energy stayed in that house. And I think that that definitely was brought on to the uh, to the Lutz family. But I, I, I definitely would not rule out that there was something there when the DeFeos were there. Maybe there was... Um, like a powder keg of a house. I just, I just think there's just so many different theories. It's hard to stick to one. I th- I'm very open-minded to that. Yeah. All right, so what's your last story? Okay, so my last one is the Winchester Mystery House. Okay. Which a lot of people know of. It's the one house. I mean, here, let me move my monitor. Okay. Have you seen this house? Huge. Yeah, so that's the house that was um, invented by the uh, gun entrepreneur's wife. Or was oh, okay. yeah, this is the one with the millions of yeah. rooms, right? Okay. Staircases to nowhere. Yes. Full of windows. Yes, I've heard of stuff. this. Mm-hmm. So William Winchester uh, invented the Winchester rifle. Uh-huh. Which they call, what did they call it? Like the gun that, the gun that won the West, right? Because it was used in all these battles and everything. And so let's, uh, let's start out with the wedding. So Sarah Lockwood Party marries William Winchester, who is heir to the Winchester Repeating Arms Company on September 1862. 1866, their only child, Annie, was born July 12th. Tragically, she dies a mere five and a half weeks later after her birth, after something called marasmus. Marasmus? I don't know. 1873, this is when things get real. The Winchester Rifle Model 73, known as the gun that won the West, is released. So they start using this gun in battle, right? Million, I don't know if millions, but a shit ton of people have died now. Yeah. Right? At the hand, hands of this gun, I guess. I don't know. Sarah is either told 
by some people say she was told by like a mystic woman other people say it was just she believed that she would then be haunted she and her husband would be haunted by the ghosts of people who were killed by the gun right mainly native americans right because when we came in we pushed them all out west and then we were like oh we want the west too yeah this gun is invented right So, in 1880, seven years after the invention of the gun, their son dies, leaving the succession of the Winchester repeating... Or, no, not their son. Oliver Winchester, the original one, dies, Uh leaving the Winchester Arms Company to his surviving son. Okay. Who is already ill with the disease that will shortly take his life. So, then in 1881, only three months after Oliver's death, his son, William Winchester... um, wife of Sarah Winchester, I mean husband of Sarah Winchester, dies of tuberculosis at age 43. Mm, Then Sarah Winchester inherits his fortune, reportedly about $20 million, plus 50% of the Winchester repeating arms stock. Sarah, in 1885, she arrives in California. 1886, one year later, she purchases a two-story farmhouse near San Jose, California, which will soon grow into her beloved... Yolanda Villa. It's two L's. So it's Yanada. Yanada Villa. That's what I would say. Yanada Villa. Later known. Anyways, later known as the Winchester Mystery House. And she begins remodeling. This is so badass. (laughs) Early day feminism. She's like, thank you, next. I have a mansion now. Well, also, she didn't really remarry, did she? No, I I don't think so. You mourn for about a year. So she, whatever. So she begins remodeling this house. Marion or Daisy Merriman, her favorite niece, moves in and lives with Aunt Sarah for the next 15 years. So then, 1890 through 1900, the heyday of the mansion's construction when it rises from a small farmhouse to a seven-story Victorian Wow. Yeah. So in this house, let's get a little bit of what they have going here. It says here that Miss Winch- Mrs. Winchester, this is from Wikipedia, never skimped on the many adornments that she believed contributed to its architectural beauty. Many of the stained glass windows were created by Pacific American Decorative Company, which is a big old thing. And also, she had a window designed by Tiffany. Okay. Fancy, fancy. Yeah. So she's the OG. Um, there was only one, here's the thing, all of these, like, adornments and a zillion rooms, literally one working toilet. So this house... Thought through that one. ...is 24,000 square feet, has 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 160 rooms, 52 skylights, Holy 47 crap. stairways and fireplaces, 17 chimneys, 13 bathrooms, 6... And six kitchens. Oh, my God. And it was built at the price tag of $5 million in 1923. Holy crap. And that's in 1923. Yeah. In today's money, it's $71 million. So she believed that building all of these attachments and everything would confuse the ghosts. Uh Uh-huh. And there's also a belief that just having people there to perform the construction made her feel like she had people around. Yeah. So both of those are believable. That's crazy, yeah. So, when it comes to some of the beliefs, it said, um, 
that it is now haunted by both Sarah and the ghosts that were already there. Mm-hmm. So... I just can't believe, like, that. I know. I'm trying to, like, read around this fucking microphone because <laughs> my last stuff was in a Word document that I closed by accident. Aha! Okay. So, when she died, all of her possessions apart from the house were given to her niece and her personal, se- and personal secretary. Her niece then took everything she wanted and sold the rest in a private auction. Okay. It supposedly took six trucks working eight hours a day for six weeks to remove all the furniture wow. from the home. An account disputed by Winchester's biographer. So, if you fast forward quite a few years later, Ghost Adventures goes and visits the house. Mm -hmm. And they have heard everything. Footsteps, doors opening, creaking. I believe Zach almost, like, had, like, a panic attack. You know how sometimes he gets, like, really into it? Yeah. And he's like, guys, we need to leave. And they're like, we're not leaving, Zach. And he's like, we need to leave! Yeah. Right? Like, one of those. So, he had one of those going down. He was sitting there, and as he was, I watched the episode, he was talking with Janin, who, a woman named Janin, who works there, and she said that all of the stories she's been told are one thing, but her experiences, she's never actually seen things, only ever heard them. Oh. Huh. Uh, she said she was working in, like, a like a green room kind of place, watering plants, like clipping leaves, all that stuff. And she heard a big thud. Yeah. And she's like, oh, probably a squirrel, something, an acorn, who knows. Yeah. But then she heard it again, and she's like, okay, this doesn't sound right. That sounds like a heavy man's footsteps. Mm -hmm. She goes up and then realizes that above her is a skylight. So there can't be anything thudding on the floor above her because it's glass. Nothing, yeah. The glass ceiling. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a really cool place to visit. Yeah, and there's just, there's, the thing is, when I texted you, I immediately thought of this, and there was so much to do that I really don't even know where to start. I mean, there's 47 fireplaces, over one over 10,000 panes of glass, 17 chimneys with evidence of two others, two basements, three elevators that were high. She was, like, the first to have hydraulic-powered elevators. Like Wow. She, she was She's ahead bitch. of her time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she had uh, forced air heating, uh, push-button gas lights. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that stuff. Looking back, though, these gas lights might not have helped. I would love, love, love to visit this place. We, we, we should. We should. I mean, next time one of us in is San in San Jose. Jose. California. <laughs> all right. Anyways. Um, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, I that was a re- that's a really cool story to end off on. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Um, follow us on our social media, our Instagram at Just Schooly Things Podcast, Twitter Just Schooly JGT. Fuck! This is your social media. I know JGT Podcast, <laughs> Facebook Just Schooly Things Podcast, and donate to our Patreon. Just Ghouly Things Podcast. And if you or someone you know that has a paranormal experience that they'd like to share on our show, please email us at JustGhoulyThingsPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you boo-things later. Goodbye. Goodbye.